Welcome to another episode of Maritime Health and Performance Chat. You want to talk about a hard worker? Well, this current practicing physio, uh, I've had the pleasure of not only going to school with, but he was one of my main uh, studying partners with, there was a couple, a uh, group of us in Kin that did a lot of work together, tried to help each other as much as we could. And this guy was one of them. Uh, he went on to get or his master's in uh, physiotherapy, is now a practicing clinician. And to speak to this guy's hard work, he went and turned around a 3.3 GPA overall to a 3.8 GPA overall, getting a 4.0 GPA in his last year. So you, you know, this guy knows how to work hard. The guy I'm talking about, Dan Mullins. So Dan, the floor is yours. Awesome, Matt. Thanks for having me on the channel here. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I guess I'll just kind of dive into what made me decide to go uh, into physiotherapy. So I mean, I can give the classic reason of, you know, growing up playing sports, getting injured, which I mean, was the case for myself. Grade 11, tore my meniscus playing football, which I mean, wasn't ideal for sure. So going to physio for that was awesome. Definitely helped with the rehab for that. Got me back for my last year so I could go back to football, go back to hockey, everything I wanted to do. Um, and then my grade 12 year actually like had a concussion. I suspect, I mean, going back to 2012 concussion really wasn't on the radar as many people as it should have been. So we just kind of set out for a week and went back to it, which retrospectively looking back at it was not enough time. And I kind of felt that too. I played one kind of half season at Mount A for rugby. And then even just doing practices, drills, I found like the headaches were pretty bad, increasing. They were lingering afterwards and just like kind of wasn't feeling right. So that was kind of my cue to stop playing which kind of also sparked further interest in uh physio and then i mean once i got so then i switched to umb um in 2013 kind of restarted there didn't have the best academic year either about a so kind of start fresh at umb uh in kinesiology instead of just being in a bachelor of science at Mount a. and then throughout my time at umb i was volunteering with um, a program called axon and that basically was exercising with individuals with neurodegenerative disorders so parkinson's um, anything along those lines and actually quite a few post-stroke participants as well so just kind of seeing those people show up bi-weekly working so hard was pretty great so that was something that really inspired me and then they also spoke pretty highly of their physiotherapists who were helping them kind of reach their goals at home functionally. So that really kind of sparked my interest. Funny enough, I did continue with that kind of population post-graduating physio school and kind of moved back towards athletes or working with people who are fairly active. But that just kind of was targeted through my physio program. I mean, Dal has a great neuro-physio kind of component. However, I feel a lot of it's tailored towards more orthopedics, private practice, manual therapy basis. Uh, and that's kind of what sparked my interest to stay within that field, going into private practice following my graduation. So that's kind of what brought me here. I mean, definitely the neuropopulation was a place in my heart, but definitely focused a lot more on athletics. And then especially love working with people who love to get busy, whether it's running weights or spin or whatever their kind of poison is. Definitely love keeping people fit for that. But yeah, that's kind of where what brought me here. Right on. And I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but I think you did leave out a couple things because you're not only on the <laughs> academia side, you know, you're very well versed in health and fitness. You live it, right? You're a very healthy, fit person. You work in it. You uh, work as a practicing physiotherapist, but uh, you also run some group training sessions. Could you speak a bit about that? 
Yeah, so starting, I guess, last year in September, I started teaching a class at Spinco as a spin instructor, which was uh, definitely a a great kind of addition to my physiotherapy career. Definitely getting me out of my comfort zone a little bit. Love working one-on-one people, but then now kind of teaching classes of like 30, 40, um, being a motivator in that has been phenomenal. And it's also kind of helped me having a prerogative for my own fitness too. I mean, definitely helps keeping the cardio up and then... You definitely feel it when you're slacking on the cardio at home when you go teach those classes. So it definitely keeps me fit. And then it helps me, you know, motivate people, but also self-motivate too. Like people are showing up, putting them through a pretty brutal workout when they're there. So it kind of helps me translate that into my own training too. So I definitely have been diving in and out of running. I mean, I ran a half marathon last year. I loved it. I didn't have been running as much lately. It was kind of hard to have that motivation to train when there really wasn't any races, despite the races happening this year. But I mean, with COVID, you never knew how things were going to pan out. And then more recently, kind of got more serious back into the gym. Thanks to you as well. Helped me kind of create a program. Um, And I guess along those lines is it's always good to reach out to people like yourself or people who are like, practicing helping people with programs because as much as we think we know it's always good to have someone that like dedicates their current to research and such because I mean we can get stuck doing more of a bro workout for a long time but then when you really look at the research it really helps to kind of tailor your training and I'm definitely kind of going that route now especially with your help so yeah, that's, that's such a great point, you know, and you are someone who practices what they preach, right? Like you said, uh, you, you know, you're doing these uh, spin classes, you're going to the gym, as well as you're, you're educating and, and projecting your views on health and the importance and your values of health on your clients uh, and your patients. I kind of noticed you mentioned running classes of 40 people. Do you find that running a class at, say, Spinco of 40 people influences how you might operate in a clinical setting with just one patient or vice versa? For sure, yeah. So, I mean, it helps me become, I guess, a motivator at the end of the day, like whether you're motivating 40 people or one person, it doesn't necessarily change. It might obviously change the kind of tempo of my voice and the loudness for sure. I'm not screaming at my one person in the room for sure or having music playing, but uh, it doesn't really change that. Like at the end of the day, motivation is motivation. Like whether it's to kind of hold a sprint in the bike for X amount of time, or is it to really like talk to a patient be frank with them saying like, you need to do your part or this isn't going to work. I think that's a huge part too with physiotherapy. It's like, yeah, I can do my hands on, I can do my needling, but at the end of the day, it's a collaborative effort. And if they're not motivated to do their kind of homework to have a healthy lifestyle to do that, it kind of makes it more difficult. So it's definitely helped me be, uh, I guess, also vulnerable too to have those conversations. I mean, there's nothing more vulnerable than standing on the mic there when people are setting up, warming up, and you have to kind of make small talk to 40 people at once. So that definitely has helped with my uh, physiotherapy career as well. That's awesome. Definitely helps you uh, be a little more confident in your own prescriptions and whatnot and backing up your reasonings for programming for clients, whether it be in physio or at the in these workout programs, just having a background, having that know-how how to talk to people and discuss with clients. For sure, yeah. So you're fairly new in the practicing physio world. You know, uh, you graduated, what, a year ago now, two years ago now? Um, yeah, I've been practicing for about a year and a half. So whatever that translates to, I always kind of <laughs> lose what year I graduated just with the you and me graduation down. Like when did I actually graduate? But it's been about a year and a half practicing. You know, the years start coming and they don't stop. Oh coming. my gosh. Tell me <laughs> <that>. <laughs> um, 
So since you're, you're fairly new as a practicing clinician, has there been anything you've been able to do, any sort of populations you've been able to work with, any modalities, equipment, methodologies you've been able to use to treat people that have been really interesting or, or stick out to you? Yeah, for sure. So I guess um, even before I started practicing, I kind of got my first level of functional dry needling, which patients definitely love. And then as that progressed, I got my level two as well, which kind of does your typical kind of trigger point dry needling, but also adds more of a, I guess, electrical stim functional dry needling. So that has been a great modality to help individuals, especially those who don't mind a little bit of discomfort. It's been a huge help for that. Uh, some people just lay down and say, needle as much as you can in the time we have together, which is interesting for sure. So that, and then I would say I completed my complete concussion course through CCMI, uh, which is phenomenal. Their, I mean, their whole kind of pitch is being up-to-date, research-based, which has been phenomenal. Definitely learned a lot about concussion, how to treat concussion. And then what really I've learned from that is as a physiotherapist helping or, or a chiropractor, whoever has that training, helping with concussion, it's more of being kind of like an advocate and manager for the patient. Obviously, like manual therapy on the C-spine, like dry needling around certain suboccipital muscles helps kind of the, the perception of symptoms as they can kind of very, like it's very similar between, I guess, cervical dysfunction and concussion and some like headaches, kind of radiating pain, pressure, they can mimic one versus the other. So those obviously help. But a big thing too is kind of telling patients that it is okay to do a little activity, you know, sitting in that dark room for a week is so, so, so kind of outdated now. So the biggest thing is kind of encouraging patients to challenge your system a little bit to help them out of that depressive state that concussion can cause. So I would say those two have been my primary two kind of modalities that really spoke out to me from uh, in my practice. That's amazing. I mean, sticking close to home where you've had a, a athletic career cut a little bit short as far as concussions go, that must be very rewarding to see the huge development that we see, especially we don't really think of it as such, but concussion research and uh, therapy is really novel. It really is new. Um, you know, it's only been the last 10 years or so that we've really started to give it the proper attention that it deserves. It must be very rewarding to be able to help people that were in a similar situation as you, especially, you know, a situation that you have such experience with through that very difficult concussion recovery time. Yeah, for sure. And like to speak upon like the research that you were saying, like even things I learned in my first year at Dalhousie to now have changed, which is crazy. Like within three years, things have changed. Like even the understanding of the mechanism of concussion has changed in those years, which is like crazy to think about. I mean, people used to think it was like the coup contra coup theory where your brain rattled four and the posts are really hitting. Um, and then it's kind of shifted to more like axonal leakage. So your connections are leaking energy. So even that has changed, which is kind of wild to think about. Uh, and Dallow obviously stays in top of the research. So that clearly has kind of come out in the past couple of years, which I thought was quite interesting too. Yeah, the uh, the Dow Physio Department really is on top of their research. Uh, I got to take a, a data acquisition course uh, specifically for kind of a clinical setting, a kinesiology type setting with uh, Dr. Derek Rutherford, who I know you're familiar with as yeah. one of your yeah. uh, physio professors. Uh, and I mean that learning how to use MATLAB and LabVIEW, which are traditionally kind of programming softwares to collect data and analyze patient data, movement data, force plate data. It, it's, it's really interesting and so applicable to the clinical side 
side of things as well. One of my master's committee members is Dr. Sean Bow, who uh, his lab does some amazing things with, especially along the corticospinal tract and uh, physical activity, looking at improvements in motor learning and whatnot. And I think he is someone you are also familiar with. Yes and no. Sadly, I mean, obviously, depending on like, I mean, as professors, the sabbatical kind of comes in and out. So uh, we have Sean, but. He, he spoke to us a couple of times about his like brain mapping uh, research and such, but sadly we actually didn't have him as one of our profs, but, uh, but I've heard really great things about him though. Yeah, he's a really cool guy because um, research for the sake of industry and trying to industrialize or monetize your research is so poo-pooed on in the academic community. Uh, and it really shouldn't be because actually he, he makes this talk and, and he was the one who was telling us, but uh, as far as academia goes, there's only so many professorships, there's so many, so many tenureships, so many uh, instructor positions, right, to go around. So, I mean, if you've got all these people trying to funnel into a couple jobs, you're going to have a lot of people that have all this education, but then they get kind of just uh, sent to the wayside because there's not really a, a role for them or a spot for them. So, I mean, I, I love the kind of revolutionary stuff he's doing and trying to sort of industrialize some of his uh, students' research and he really helps them along. One thing, uh, you're very well-versed, like you said, you took the, the certifications in dry needling. Now, I know kind of a bit of the principles are similar to uh, where my research is surface electrode, electrical stimulation, in order to elicit increases in motor cortex excitability or along that whole uh, track from your brain, spinal cord, alpha motor neuron to those innervative muscle fibers. But could you give us a little crash course on dry needling, kind of the mechanisms and how it works, you know, what a uh, client could expect or what it might be used for? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think what you just mentioned is a huge kind of component of the second technique where you actually like leave the needles in and you hook them up to a little bit of a current. So that has a huge kind of preface on like neuromodulation, which you kind of touched upon. So that's kind of one method. So you basically put the needles in either the muscle or near the nerve you want to target. You hook them up to a current, it sends a current into the needles, which then has a feedback on the muscle slash nerve. So I mean, for example, if you're doing someone's glute, you kind of find the motor point, put the needle in, and then the glute will have a pretty big contraction. And that'll be more of a continuous contraction for about five minutes compared to the more kind of traditional way of doing dry needling that people have been doing much longer is you find a tight muscle, or I shouldn't say tight, you find a tonic muscle, so there's tension through it. You find kind of a tight band, and then you stick the needle in, you move it around, and then that causes an actual twitch and release of the muscle. And I use the word kind of tonic or tension versus tight, because if you think about many people will often say, oh, you have tight traps. Well, if you had tight traps, if you think about the meaning of that, you're, you'd be walking with your shoulders at your ears, right? Which is, <laughs> which is I mean, I'm sure Tom Hardy might have tight traps, but the majority of us don't have that. So we actually, I, rather, I kind of use the word tension instead of tight, because especially when you want to kind of strengthen a tonic muscle, well, then someone might be, well, my traps are tight. Why should I strengthen them? That doesn't really make sense. So I think switching the narrative to more kind of tension-based makes more sense for those. Yeah, um, kind of, it, it points to that neuromuscular control over the actual overall size or force production capabilities of these muscles. Exactly, for sure. And that's kind of why, like, in my practice, I mean, I try to avoid prescribing stretching and I know I might get some flack for this but I kind of don't necessarily gravitate towards stretching I mean I'm sure there's a place for it but anytime I do it's more of a PNF base so contractual relaxation to actually have that like neuromodulation change to it or rolling instead of pure stretching because I mean 
I'm sure you probably agree with this too, that quote unquote stretching is kind of questionable in the research, right? So yeah, lately. And it's one of those things that you have to, it's why you have to keep up to date and constantly be striving to further your education because in the, especially in the last probably eight to 10 years, the research has been coming out that static stretching specifically. So kind of using that passive stretching or using gravity to kind of place yourself in a, your, or your muscles in an extended position and holding that position for 30 plus seconds is very outdated now. And especially in strength and power sports, because uh, stretching those muscles, forcing those muscle lengths to increase through passive means um, and through static stretching usually results in actually decreased force output and power output. Whereas methodologies, like you said, the PNF, what happens is you passively put someone's joint into an, uh, an extended or a, a farther stretched out range of motion. And then they actually have to activate that muscle to try to contract against the motion you're trying to do. So if you're trying to do PNF on the hamstrings, you would, you know, have someone lay on their back, have their heel on your stomach, push their legs so that their toes are going towards their head. And then they would try to almost cut their heel down through you by contracting that hamstrings for about, you know, five seconds, and then you'd stop and then you do it again. And what you see is you can go actually deeper into that position. And um, what that kind of stuff does is it improves the neuromuscular control, the rate at which those brain signals are being sent to the muscle, as well as the synchronization. So uh, all your muscles and the muscles surrounding the target group are able to better stabilize your joint and your body senses that. And then is more, this is very dumbing it down, but intrinsically it becomes more comfortable at letting your joints go into those more uh, extended range of motions where you might be afraid to go to because you might feel a bit of stretch sensation, not necessarily pain, but stretch and discomfort. So um, for sure. And I find it also kind of reminds the body that it's okay to fire in those kind of extreme positions, especially for athletes. I mean, you can expect you can't stretch or train an athlete in kind of anatomical position at neutral and expect them to be able to fire in all these wild positions. So I find it's also great for that. It's like, Remind the body, hey, like full hamstring extension, contraction, that's okay. And obviously in some modulation of that, but I think that's a huge thing too. Yeah. And that's why I really like dynamic stretching. And I preach that to uh, athletes when I, when I coach in wrestling and judo and whatnot, that dynamic stretching is better in, it lets your body experience that stretching feel at different ranges of motion in a more kind of specific way to the sport. So instead of just holding that end range, you hit it and return. And then you hit it at a slightly different angle and then return and then a slightly different angle and then return for, you know, five to 10 times uh, repetitively. And that also kind of preps your body. Uh, your brain gets those stretch receptors signaling back to it to say, okay, we know how to fire in this position. Now we know how to fire in this position, which like you said, in sport is such a dynamic thing that it's near impossible to predict exactly how the forces are going to be experienced and at what angles of your range of motion, those forces will be experienced in. So you got to kind of warm up and prepare and get your, those connections from your brain to that muscle firing and ready for those. So it can better anticipate and react to those situations instead of just get way stretched out and you get hurt. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I would love Dan to kind of go on a little side note here. We're nearing the end of January when we're recording this. So, uh, you know, I've got a couple, so I've got to go and uh, get a release schedule when I'm doing them weekly. Uh, this might not come up for a little bit, but uh, this is definitely a pretty common time where uh, you and I as avid gym goers, now that we're not really uh, athletes or anything like that anymore, just going to commercial gyms. This is when 
people like you and I who consistently go love the resolutioners and not the shit on anyone's new year's resolutions. If you're making them, that's an attempt at a behavior change. Fantastic on you. But you know, the people we would call resolutioners who show up to the gym in January are starting to kind of lose that motivation, right? They've gotten those initial uh, quick adaptations that you see to training and they'll start to plateau and then adaptations come and improvements come a little bit more slowly. So people like Dan and I love the gym this time of year because it's a lot more empty. It's easier to get your equipment used. But Dan, you are someone who I believe it was back in our second year made that conscious effort to say, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight and you lost a ton of weight. And not only did you do that, you did it safely. You remained physically active and for the last umpteen years, you know, five or six years now, you have kept it off. That is something people really have a difficulty doing and pitfalls that I've hit, right? I've lost tons of weight before, but ballooned right back up because I, I use such a restrictive diet that as soon as I got my hands on, uh, you know, something I really liked, like some beer or some pizza or something like that, I blew right back up and binged on that stuff, right? Could you speak a bit about kind of, and, and go in as deep or as shallow into it as you want, but just kind of some of the things that work for you, the pitfalls, how you stayed consistent, how you stayed motivated and how you kept all the weight off? For sure. Yeah. So I guess like growing up, I definitely was uh, a heavier set kiddo. And then kind of my first like kind of knock at like weight loss was like, I think in grade 10. And then I lost a ton of weight. But that was more to like the restrictive diet, like you said, you had the experience with, which would like work very well. I mean, I lost a ton of weight. I like stayed, I was like super skinny, like worked out for sure. But like nothing like now where it's more like goal oriented. And then come first year university or second year, I mean, then you're kind of more on your own, more freedom, like more drinking, all that stuff, you know, light night jacks after you go to the bar, all those little factors <laughs> start to creep up on you. And uh, to anyone listening, late night jacks refers to uh, Jack's Pizza in Fredericton, which, which Dan and I had both frequented many a time uh, during our after a night out at the pubs. I mean, so then I started to creep back up, was not as restrictive on my diet. And then plus living in meal hall, I was a product in my last two years. So I lived in residence all four years. So you're kind of stuck eating whatever is available there. Um, and then come my third year, I really kind of tackled my studies and kind of dipped off my training, my fitness. So I kind of ballooned back up per se. I mean, I think I got back to like 230 and I was training there. I was kind of arguably quote unquote powerlifting at the time. So you know, you always have the mentality, oh, it's okay to be a little heavier, which is not necessarily Yeah, way more, lift more. Yeah, and I definitely, definitely got stronger, but I mean, at what cost? So summer after third year, I stayed in Ferriton, lived with my uncles, and I was like, why now? Like, this is like not what I want to do. This is not what I want to like be like. So I kind of just ran, went back to that more restrictive diet again, was very strict with it, exercised, I mean, lifted weights I think five times a week did a lot of outdoor activities a lot of running hiking so I was definitely exercising I mean like nine ten times a week which is again something that's not always feasible for some people but where I was working at a gym in the summertime access to it it was quite easy to do so and then come back my fourth year was able to kind of maintain that fitness worked out quite significantly all the time kind of changed my perception of like what meal hall could offer you started making my own meals on meal hall, which is fantastic. Ate more chicken than I've had my life, which is fantastic. <laughs> and then kind of since then I've been, I guess I, I kind of fluctuate still depending on um, how strict of my diet, which is kind of, which has been kind of been good because 
now, I mean, I think I'm sitting around maybe 180. Definitely not super shredded. Definitely not overweight by all means. So I think I've kind of found a good, good, a good place where I eat healthy, healthy meals, but then I'll definitely won't say no to a, a cookie or a treat, which I think is definitely the more long-term attainable goal. I mean, you can't be restricted forever. You can't have this like negative perception of, oh, this cookie is going to do X, Y, Z. It, it has to be, you know what? I'm eating the protein I need. I'm having good, healthy carbs and I'm hitting my fat. I'm hitting my macros. Well, then on the weekend, hey, maybe going out, having a few beers and having a slice of pizza at some day is not going to kill me. And I think that's always going to be kind of an ongoing struggle too, especially for I, like yourself, we kind of fluctuate. So if I ever find myself kind of creeping back up a little bit, I'll tighten things up and kind of mitigate that. But again, spin has been phenomenal for helping me kind of stay semi-lean-ish for sure. Uh, <laughs> could always be leaner, but I mean, that's the most of us. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think the big change was definitely like a lifestyle change versus kind of more temporary restrictive diets. And my, my mom has been a huge role model. I mean, she is like, the epitome of like the 80 20 she eats so well for herself and she doesn't say no to some treats or some wine on the weekends too which is good so i think she's been a huge role model um and actually recently my dad he was like pre-diabetic kind of leaning on diabetic and she was like no brian you know what like we're gonna like fix this you're gonna change your lifestyle and since then his like a1c and all of his uh levels have been phenomenal so she really kind of kicked him in the butt a little bit. So I would say definitely my mom is a huge kind of motivator for that too. That's uh, that's awesome. It sounds like mama Mullins don't play. No, she does not for sure. <laughs> she's like the 5am workout person. So yeah, oh, she's, man, she's that's awesome. Yeah. What a, what a great influence that must be. But I love that you talked about that 80-20, that balance, right? That you can't be afraid to go out and have some beers with your friends and, you know, have that slice of pizza or whatever. You know, it, it really is about that ba- finding that balance and consistency. And you even said, too, sometimes not, it's about not having that balance, right? Overall, you want to have a balance. But you said if you find your weight creeping back up, you, you tighten that diet up a bit get the couple pounds off and then you can turn back to that, that balance, right? You know, having some less and more calorie dense foods. It's funny because, uh, you know, having um, a friend of mine, uh, Morgan King, she's aspiring registered dietitian and, and kind of how you said a little bit about some of that, that the cookie, you can't look at as like a bad food, right? Like you just look, you enjoy it, right? It's, it's nutrients in the end of the day, whether, whether it's a chicken and rice or it's a piece of pizza, your body just, seizes your nutrients the macronutrients and micronutrients right there's not really a good bad food it's just calorie dense foods that may or may not be optimal for your current physique goals or training goals or performance goals and what people have to realize is you know it's hard with social media because you see the influencers you see people trying to and a lot of these people are trying to promote themselves right a lot of them do have maybe a a certified personal trainer or they're programmers, or they're trying to sell a product or something like that. So you're only ever going to see them in their tip top shape. But even the guys winning the Arnold and, and the Olympia uh, for, for bodybuilding and physique sport, those guys aren't shredded year round. Those guys aren't in competition uh, oh physique year round, because if they were, their bodies would not be able to handle the intense training that they do. And like you even said, some people can't do um, that nine, 10 days a week, especially on a calorie deficit, because physically 
your body's just not getting enough nutrients, enough substrates uh, and energy to provide yourself that fuel to do those workouts. And all that's going to happen is you're going to rush to do it. You're going to try to lose all this weight too fast. You're going to train too hard and then you're going to get hurt. And then you know what's going to happen? You're going to lose three, four weeks. Your motivation is going to be all time low. You're going to put that weight back on and then you're going to do it all over again. It's definitely about finding that balance, that fun and discipline. And it's about finding consistency, right? Kind of like you said, that 80-20. If I eat well 80% of the time, that's, or I shouldn't say well, because that's kind of going back to that giving food sort of uh, positive and negative connotations. But if I eat uh, nutrient-dense, lower calorie food, uh, look to meet certain macro goals to optimize physique and performance 80% of the time, that's pretty damn consistent compared to the 20% of the time where maybe I don't track my calories or macros. Maybe I do just eat as I please, eat till I'm full, eat till I'm a little bit over full, pick those more nutrient dense foods. Um, So yeah, definitely having some balance, but kind of also knowing yourself and knowing when to take that break and enjoy yourself and reward yourself. For sure. And I think just to kind of clarify when I'm like, even now I probably would be working out like maybe eight times a week but I'm not in any means in a deficit. And I think that's a huge thing to, for people to realize It's like, you can't expect yourself to be at a limited restricted, maybe like 1800 calories a day and working at that off. And that's not, like you said, that's not feasible. Like that's not what I'm doing. Like I'm probably eating more now than I would be if I was working out four or five times a week. So you just kind of have to pick your poison. Like I feel better. Like I like to move. I find it clears my head. There's so many beneficial things to me personally that I rather move more and then maybe keep my diet similar instead of doing a deficit and working out less. But that again is always your definitely do what's right for your body. Like you said, and like, don't expect like you see these people, like you said, on like Instagram will like maybe like, Oh, like buy these peach bands, do these like every day and you'll have like a big butt. I think you see that all the time. But I'm like, they're also not showing the fact that they squat, hip thrust, all these other things. So like, always be mindful when you see other people doing something like, think critically about it, because not everything works for individual people. So just be mindful of that. I think it's huge. That That's a great point. You have to look at everything with a grain of salt, because there's so many factors that go into training and diet, like, you know, the people you see on social media, sure, they may look great, they may be able to squat 400 pounds, they might have six pack abs or whatever. But you know what, they've been training for 10 years. They've had the same pitfalls you're having. They've had those. They tried a fad diet, didn't work. They tried another one, it didn't work. And then eventually they kind of found what did work for them. They found a training split that worked for them, right? We're all so different and specific that the the world of, and even in the research world, there's so many confounding factors when you start getting into nutrition research and even um, muscular responses to training, whether it be strength or hypertrophy. Um, can be so individual person to person, depending on nutrition status, uh, depending on training age, depending on chronological age, sex, even race, there's different genetics, right? So you can't carbon copy mirror someone you see online or anything like that. You have to take what they're doing because I bet you they're doing a lot of good shit, but then apply it to yourself. Keep that specific to you. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, I think that's huge to think about that too, because I mean, like, even like I mentioned, you're helping me with my training. Like I, before when I was end of last year, I was just doing a generic plan online, which, you know what, for some people that definitely works. But then when I actually critically looked at it, 
I was like, this isn't right for me, especially with all the other activities I'm doing. This doesn't make any sense. So I think it's like, definitely do your research, but also find someone that knows more than you. Like smart people have smart people around them. Like you always want someone smarter in your corner than yourself. So I think that's a huge thing. Like now since revamp my program that actually encompasses my whole kind of spectrum of fitness. It includes my spin. It includes, I do many classes at movies, which is kind of a boutique fitness gym, more kind of Metcon metabolic training style. And I get my strength training. You can't like, you need to make sure that everything's balanced. And I think that's definitely look at the bigger picture. Don't necessarily pull a workout from maybe like bodybuilder.com and expect to get like these people you see because you need to make sure it tailors to your actual life, not just on paper. Exactly. And I mean, that holistic approach that you have is a really, really healthy one, right? You're getting all the benefits from cardiovascular training. You're getting the benefits from resistance training. And also there's for both of those, the benefits and the improvements you see and whatnot, it's just good for mental health too. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. That's like I said, that's why I like to move more than less. Like I rather move a lot more <laughs> for sure. I, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, even sometimes I find on my off days, it's hard to actually take a proper off day. I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good. I could go lift a little bit, but at the same time, kind of like you said, um, when you're in a calorie deficit, it's not always feasible. I'm at about 1900 calories a day right now. So, um, my first micro phase of this diet. So my first four weeks, I was doing a five day a week training program. And for me, it works then because I had built up some pretty good fat stores. So, and my oxidative capacity was pretty good. And I was pretty heavy. So I felt that my uh, nutrient stores within my body were enough to kind of make up for that calorie deficit for the first little bit. And I like to use that to kind of jumpstart my weight loss, get my body in a catabolic state as far as breaking down those fat stores. But then the second meso cycle, I guess, that I started this week, I cut down to four week, four days a week because I'm starting a little bit feel that energy drop and, and you're going to happen. It's, it's unavoidable. Uh, you just want to mitigate that the best as possible. But I started to feel that drop. So I'm down to four days a week. So I'm doing a Monday, Tuesday, an extra rest day in the middle of the week and then Thursday Friday. So like you said, you've got to find what works for you. 100%. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So you mentioned something really interesting. And through my research with electrical stim, there's a lot of implications in neural neural rehab. So in rehab of anything from traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, incomplete spinal cord injury, and one thing that you mentioned earlier, stroke. I'd love to hear, and obviously don't give any specifics, um, but working with that axon program, uh, you read about it so much, the benefits of exercise in the rehabilitation, some of these very serious neurological conditions, but you actually got to experience and see it. So what were kind of some of the, uh, the processes and the progressions of people you were working with and how did exercise benefit them and help them in their recovery? For sure. Yeah. So I guess, um, especially for stroke related, like, a stroke obviously damages part of the brain and then it also basically muddies that neural pathway to whether it's the arm or whatever that may be. So definitely the benefit of exercise is not only obviously like strengthening the muscles themselves, but especially with those covered neuro deficits, you're strengthening the motor pattern. So um, doing your squats with kind of at the gym, I mean, that's going to translate right to your sit to stand or maybe a ball toss might help you be able to do the dishes, getting that upper body, that flexion extension patterning down. So it was definitely, it was typically tailored towards more like 
fun-ish. Usually, so we always did circuit form. Um, so circuits can look from anything from like, even like boxing, I'd be holding pads, they'd be hitting, hitting the pads or kind of throwing a ball. Well, definitely a lot of sit to stand. And I, obviously that's so helpful, not only in the neural population, but as we age, I mean, you have to keep those legs so kind of used to that pattern because think about how many times you get up from a chair. And that's something we take for granted as, you know, 26. I mean, we joke about feeling old, but at the end of the day, you, you can jump out of chair, no problem. But when you get to 70 plus, if you haven't maybe as active your whole life, that's not an easy movement, especially if, if we have a super low chair, that's hard to get out of those chairs. Like we take that for granted so often. So we definitely did a lot with sit to stand squats. Um, and then, like I said, yeah, definitely a lot of motor uh, patterning. That's awesome. And that must be such a rewarding line of work because getting to read a lot of the literature behind rehabilitation of these injuries, one of the main goals and really the main goal for a lot of these people is a return to preconditioned function. So after they suffer these strokes or incomplete spinal cord injury, doing things that you and I take for granted, like holding your cup of coffee in one hand and holding your, your kettle or your French press or whatever in the other hand and filling it right? Like that's so easy. We do that without thinking, but after you suffer some, one of those neurological conditions that becomes as hard as deadlifting 500 pounds. And, you know, obviously on a gym side of things, that's a pretty cool goal. That's intense training. But at the end of the day, if you can't pull that, you still get to go about your daily life. Whereas these people in that condition, like you said, how many times we sit and stand from a chair, these conditions leave these people unable to do them or with a reduced capability or capacity to do these things again and again. So, I mean, it must be amazing to get to see the physical progression from coming in and starting with you guys to actually being able to start to return to some normalcy in their lives with these, uh, with these patients. Oh, for sure. And I guess even to kind of bring that. So through Dalhousie in your last year for physio school, you have these little patient partner groups, we call them. So basically you're paired with, um, a physiotherapist who's typically a prof and then whatever their kind of niche of physio is, they reach out, get a patient, and then you basically treat them one to two times a week, um, as students, which is a phenomenal program. Um, it's obviously free for the general pop, which is phenomenal because I mean, access to healthcare can be tough sometimes, especially in the private practice setting. So for my patient partner, we had an individual post-stroke. So he had a stroke, went to uh, the Nova Scotia Rehab Center, which is, they do phenomenal work there. Um, but that's only for a sh not a short period of time, but for a certain period of time. And when they get you to a certain functional status, then you're okay to be discharged. Well, then what then? Like, what do you do then when you're functionally perhaps kind of more within the norm, but then you're still not back to your, your running or cycling or whatever you did before the stroke? So we got this gentleman and then he kind of said his goal was to ride a bike. Well, then we started working on balance. We started working on kind of hamstring quadrant. We did all these things. And obviously as students, it was um, not basic therapy, but more obviously exercise correlated therapy uh, as we didn't have too many <laughs> modalities at that time but um but funny enough um when i started my job at saint mary's i ended up treating his wife and i was like oh how's he doing and then she was like you know what he can ride a bike now so it's it's just those like little things that you you think might be simple like you said like we do every day but to someone that means a lot like for them to be able to ride a bike like 
she was so grateful that he was able to get to that. And it seems so easy for us. Like it just kind of shows the glory of physio, but not only that, it also like health, healthy lifestyle exercise. It's huge. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, being healthy, keep moving to uh, kind of paraphrase that old saying it's, you know, we get old when we stop moving and, you know, there's sort of scientific principles to back that up. Our body is stupidly efficient. So most of our systems operate on that kind of use it or lose it principle. If you're not using your, your muscles, they're going to atrophy. They're going to break down. If you're not using those neural pathways, they're going to weaken, right? Because your body doesn't need them. It doesn't have to dedicate resources to them. So yeah, like having that and like, someone, the, the gift of, of health uh, is, must be so awesome. And I definitely applaud you for that one. For sure. And like along that line, you kind of mentioned, I mean, like if you think about, we lose our, our power fibers just naturally as we age. So we need to keep at that. And like, I think that's a huge kind of area in exercise or training, especially for kind of middle-aged older adults that we don't talk about we don't talk about power as you age but why shouldn't we i mean when you get to a certain point getting out of a chair is a quick explosive movement well shouldn't we be kind of implementing more of that training so we don't lose as many fibers so we're not as dependent as we age i mean that's like like you said lose it, use it or lose it that's huge yeah and um funny about that if you think about where a lot of uh health issues come with older people uh you look at the fall risk as we age and you look at what happens to people as you start to age and and the the sorry associated health conditions with falling so usually you fall you fracture something that inability results in that muscle wasting that muscle wasting results in a decreased metabolism which means you might be clearing uh, harsh chemicals that are in your body that you're usually meant to clear and filter out they might be hanging around causing issues you might put on more fat you know and, and a lot of things like um cancers when you when you actually sometimes they actually prescribe gaining weight because when you have that weight that muscle behind you you have more metabolic efficiency you can respond to treatments better you can recover from harsh treatments better and um what that will result in is just a, again a healthy overall lifestyle a better uh kind of quality of life a better recovery and also a decreased risk for so many factors and going back to that power um aspect your reaction when you go to fall say if whether you slip on ice your toe catches a ledge or something like that it's power it's a very quick very rapid uh muscular response your body has to assess the direction you're falling where the stretch is happening where the compression tension is happening turn on those muscles that are in that area of the body that are losing that stability and then keep them on keep the force uh keep the force going at usually a mechanically disadvantaged position and allow those muscles to return that person to a stable posture right that is power and strength training which definitely doesn't get plugged enough especially for older adults oh for sure and like like you said like fall to as we age i mean like honestly 80 or above if you fall across your hip that like nowadays that can almost be a death sentence like being bedridden for that period of time in the hospital is so detrimental to your health. Like, I think I think we had that study at UMB. They talked about if you take healthy people, make them lay in bed for what was it? I can't remember. A couple of weeks. However, no exercise. That significant muscle wasting was crazy. So then, obviously, you you extrapolate that to your eighty year old individual who maybe is already frail, has no muscle to lose as it is. Well, there there's your function gone just like that, just just because of a slip. 
Exactly. Like, uh, and like you said, from that study, uh, if at a healthy, a healthy person, um, or sorry, not a healthy person, but a healthy young person loses such a substantial amount of muscle in just a couple of weeks, imagine that, you know, and to put this in perspective, uh, a lot of things like uh, bone mineral density, muscle mass, our strength capacity, uh, hormone concentrations, we lose about on average 1% of that every year after the age of 30. So if you're not taking measures to kind of attenuate those losses, then imagine what's going to happen at the age of 80 if you're bedridden, right? You no longer have that metabolism. You no longer have those uh, conditioned energy systems in place to try to mitigate those losses. So those losses are going to happen rapidly and the effects are going to be detrimental. For sure. And like you spoke with bone density, the best way to maintain bones, bone density put low with your system. So that all ties back into like staying super healthy, super active. Like that's huge. Exactly. And thankfully we have this funny thing called gravity that's constantly working down on us. So uh, for certain people uh, when they're just trying to start to get physically active, they can improve their bone density by just walking, by running, jogging. And then you get that conditioning. Then you got to start, then your bones say, okay, I'm conditioned. What's next? Then you get into the gym. Then those heavy weights start to condition them. Right. And I mean, just a little side note, as far as uh, BMD goes, you look at uh, females, right. Who just physiologically have uh, smaller bones, have less strong bones. Uh, and, and generally they are lighter on average than males. So there's just less stimulus to those bones to grow and be stronger. So you talk about, the benefits of exercise and resistance training. There's a big population right there that should be, it should be ingrained into the culture of let's strength train, let's get stronger. You're never going to suffer from being stronger. There will never be a time in your life that being stronger is going to hurt you, but there will be plenty of situations where being weaker is going to hurt you, going to be detrimental to you, is going to negatively affect something you may want to do. So let's exercise, let's get healthy, let's strength train. A hundred percent. Dan, we've been, we've been going for a bit and, and all my guests volunteer their times that you included. So just to kind of, as we wrap up here, one of the questions we like to ask our guests is what do you feel that you're doing right now to kind of stand out and, and get ahead and work your way up in your field? Yeah. So I guess right now, I mean, trying to kind of treat more and more compassion patients, I think has kind of helped me try to stand out. Um, and then also, I mean, the dry needling has definitely super helpful, definitely helps, uh, those who have a send out as well, but I guess kind of going forward, what I'm kind of hoping to do eventually is kind of, like I mentioned to this to you that I hope to get my kind of CSCS, a strength conditioning, um, as well, just because, I mean, like we talked about, there's a huge population that doesn't have that stimulus they need. So kind of moving forward, I kind of hope to get more into like, kind of program for individuals and tailor that towards physiotherapy. I mean, there's so apart, we prescribe exercises all the time. So why shouldn't it be more program based, more kind of um, not only maintenance or rehab, why shouldn't it be prevention? So I think that's something I kind of want to start diving into as kind of my education increases. That's uh, so interesting because another guest we had on, also a practicing physiotherapist who graduated from Dal Physio, 
uh, Nick Russell. So he and I were having a conversation about how he likes to talk to strength conditioning professionals uh, as far as when he's trying to do programming to find things that he can send his clients home with to, to work with at home to really get the most out of their physio and their rehab experience. And, you know, I was saying how those two professions, uh, i.e. being like a, a physio and a, a kinesiologist or a strength conditioning professional have such a good marriage, let alone if one person has the knowledge of both of those professions, you know, in their tool belt, like that would be such a benefit to your clients. Cause not only would you see them on the say, post-surgery or post-injury side of things where you're just trying to get them some normalcy back, like some somewhat of a return to function when they can then be good enough to return to their daily life and move on to hopefully more strenuous physical activity to improve those uh, tissues and structures that might have been damaged or injured. But you don't have to send someone away now. You can do it all in-house and you have that all that knowledge and you can apply that in different stages of people's progression. So, I mean, that's going to be a huge benefit for not only you, but the people you treat. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's going to be a huge thing for like kind of prevention of injury too. I mean, as physiotherapists, we, I mean, 90% of the people we see are, oh, I injured myself X amount of time ago. I need to get back to blank. Well, I think a huge portion of physio and strength training can definitely be prevention. I mean, you see a clear relationship between someone who does their kind of prevention and then they come in for maintenance. I mean, that's a huge kind of portion of physio that doesn't really get explored as often. When someone comes in when they've been injured for two years, the prognosis is obviously never as good as someone that comes in. Oh, you know, I kind of felt my knee pain coming on just a little bit. I'm just here for my little quick maintenance and my exercise progression. Like those individuals who stay on top of it, who are more in preventative state, have such better outcomes than those who kind of sit on it for extended period of time, pushing their health off um, to the last minute. And I mean, obviously there's many, many factors about that. And we could talk hours about access to healthcare, which is a whole nother kind of ball game. But I mean, I'm talking more with individuals who do have access. They just kind of choose to put their health on the back burner while they're busy. I mean, not to say everyone's busy, but you have to prioritize prioritize yourself sometimes too, right? So, Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have the tendency to be more reactive than proactive. I mean, health's an easy one because a lot of things with health, and that's the positive effects and negative effects on health. They don't happen overnight most of the time. Usually when you get, you know, say a major injury, sometimes it's a freak accident, right? Sometimes your body is out of nowhere experiencing these really high forces in some sort of position that gives you an injury. That happens. But a lot of the time, it's just chronic, not taking proper care of something, not being active enough. So your muscles aren't there to respond when uh, you're put in a compromising position. Uh, You know, it's, it's great that if you go on a walk and, and you get cut by a thorn bush it's great to put a band-aid on the cut but why not cut the bush off the path then then you're not going to get cut ever again right like be proactive with your with your health kind of that quote-unquote prehab term as opposed to taking your health seriously only after something bad happens i could have said it better for sure 
<laughs> Much appreciated, Dan. Um, so I guess the, the next big question that we usually ask uh, our guests is how has the current global pandemic affected you and your work? And what sort of considerations and modifications have you had to make to continue working, continue providing a service to your clients? Yeah, it's definitely thrown us for a loop for sure. I mean, I would say it was probably worse off in the kind of beginning stages of COVID. I mean, in Nova Scotia, we've been quite fortunate in the last few months to be pretty low case numbers, which is kind of allowed people to kind of regain some normalcy in their physical activity, which has been great. But I think the huge thing is people are seeing is those who um, are usually active year round, like diligent gym members, diligent runners with their running groups, all those things. I mean, they didn't have access for those for six months-ish during that kind of original lockdown. So you're seeing a lot of kind of more injuries that might have been prevented if they were doing their normal. I mean, a tendon or muscles used to be loading maybe X amount for such a long period of time. Well, you don't have that loaded for six months and then you try to get back to your normal function. Well, the muscles and tendons don't always can support that because you were significantly more sedentary during those times. And I've been seeing a lot of that. A lot of runners are frustrated that now they're running back with their running groups and such, which is phenomenal but their performance and then their muscles aren't as where they should be, where they feel it should be um, because they weren't doing all their kind of gym training. They weren't doing their running group training where, I mean, for some people you run much better in groups. Um, so that's been a huge thing. And you even see that in professional sports right now, you'll see, you're seeing all these injuries in the NFL and all these other things. It seems more than usual because people who didn't have access to, to their prehab to their kind of norm normalcy in terms of their training. So that's been a huge thing is just kind of those little injuries that might be lingering more now just because people haven't been stressing the system as much. So yeah, for sure. I mean, it probably drives up business for you where people are in their mind. They're so excited to get back to doing what they used to do. Once the gym's open, once uh, they're able to be in larger groups. So like you said, going on those running groups that they provide a stimulus to their body that was kind of equal to a stimulus that they could handle and they were conditioned for, four months ago, five months, six months ago, but that's not how our bodies work, right? We were talking about that user to lose it principle. You know, your muscles have wasted, even if you're working out at home, it's different, right? Like, uh, you know, comparing home workouts to gym workouts, you're just not able to provide that same sort of loading to the muscles and tendons. So then again, back to that user, lose it, your integrity of your tendons and cartilage and ligaments might break down a bit, not to a clinical point that you're in pain or uh, have any movement deficiency. So very easy to go unnoticed, but to a point that if you train at your old max or something like that, you're going to hurt yourself. And, and I think that's probably the mentality for a lot of these people that they're ready to go psychologically. They're so refreshed, so motivated, but they don't realize that all these things take time. You have to recondition yourself to be able to go back to those old kind of uh, top performance uh, status that you used to have. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dan, just before we wrap up here, uh, is there any sort of uh, projects or programs, uh, other people you'd like to highlight, uh, especially, you know, if people are looking for a physio where they can find you, or if they're looking for some uh, exercise programs and classes where they can also come find you, uh, plug it all. And of course, we'll drop it in the description for people to uh, seamlessly go find Dan if they want to afterwards. 
Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, like I might have mentioned, I work at uh, Lifemark at St. Mary's, so right um, kind of in the same building as the Homburg Center, so the gym there. Um, I have uh, a physio Instagram that I should be a little more active on, I'll be honest, but uh, definitely always working on that. And you can kind of see the needling. Um, I have quite a few videos about different needling techniques on there too, which is quite interesting. So that's just Dan Mullins PT uh, on Instagram there. Um, and then for, in terms of kind of, um, I guess, shout outs, definitely, I mean, Spin Co, you can definitely find me on the on the bike there as well. If you ever want to come to try a class out, just see a little more goofier side of me um, than you might not see in the clinic. Um, and then in terms of kind of fitness programming and gym, um, like I said, Move East on Quinpool, phenomenal gym. Um, definitely if you're kind of, used to some more athletic based training and you want to get kind of back into it. It has a great, all their classes are phenomenal. A lot of athletic movements, a lot of cleans, a lot of along those lines, squatting tempo stuff. It's phenomenal. Whether you're an expert, you've been an athlete for years, or even if you're just kind of trying to delve into it, I definitely recommend checking that out. Um, and then definitely talk to the people who have been doing it. So like yourself, um, definitely recommend you, like I said, you helped me with my own program. Like you had, I think Eric Richard on as well, who's another phenomenal, um, CSCS. So definitely looking at those people and then seeing what they're doing. Cause clearly it's, uh, it's working. So side note, <laughs> he, he hates that when people say Eric Richard, he's like, it's Richard, it's Richard. Oh, whatever. <laughs> you know what? He, uh, he moved to my town of Moncton from, I thought it was Quebec. Maybe it wasn't Quebec. So I always thought it was like Richard, but I might've been mistaken. So that guy definitely, uh, beat me up in football for two years so and, and as you saw he played at Acadia afterwards so he uh, he's definitely someone who practices what he preaches for sure so big time well Dan thank you so much for volunteering your time to come on the show today and I know there was so much uh, little nuggets of wisdom from so many different sort of uh, dimensions of health that uh, people will be able to pull from this. And like I always like to iterate, you know, on, uh, on maritime health and performance chat, we really like to have something for everyone. So someone like you is such, a, such an awesome guest to have on uh, with su such a diverse background in academia, in athletics, in, on the clinical side of things, and also just your lifestyle. You're a healthy guy, you know? It's, it's, it's as much about reading the books and, and seeing the current evidence as it is about living it and experiencing it. So again, Dan, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. And I definitely like to joke that I'm like an average Joe with everything, master nothing. So I definitely well-versed in, in many different forms of fitness. So like if anyone ever wants to travel or anything, definitely let me know for sure. So thanks for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate it. No worries. Exactly. It's a, there's always a benefit to being the, the jack of all trades. <laughs> And that's all we got for this week on Maritime and Health and Performance Chat. Uh, we'll see you next time.